Welcome to Fan Fiction is Good, actually, a podcast about how fan fiction is good. Actually, I have a very exciting guest from Europe. I'll let you introduce yourself and say exactly where and uh, tell people how you would like to be known and where to find you on the internet. Hi, um, my name is The Stolen Century, uh, which you can find under the underscore stolen underscore century on Instagram. Or annoyingly, um, thinking minus with minus quadrants on Tumblr currently because I'm back to using Tumblr thanks to my new fandom. Um, all right, I am from Europe specifically. I currently live in Germany, um, and uh, I am Russian. If you can't tell by my accent, so yeah. Uh, what fandom are you in now that brought you back to Tumblr? I have to know. Around the World in 80 Days uh, that just came out over the Christmas uh, period. The one with David Tennant um, that's uh, a European co-production. Wow, this is going to be a European-themed episode, huh? <laughs> uh, um, so, yeah. They, it's I... real good. There's an OT3 that, like, David Tennant confesses... Uh, oh, shit. I shouldn't spoiler that. <laughs> That's okay. We'll we'll uh, we'll just let people assume. Um, I have not seen that. I, I vaguely remember hearing about it now, but uh, yeah, I haven't I haven't seen any new movies in a long time. Jeez, the pandemic. It's uh, the an pandemic eight episode thing. miniseries. Oh, really? And it's coming out right now on PBS. Um, this Saturday should be the final two episodes. Hello, everyone. It's editing Evan. So when my guest says this Saturday in this episode. She's talking about a Saturday back in February when we recorded this episode. I have just neglected to edit it until now because of poor time management in regards to doing podcasts and also planning my wedding. Um, sorry about that, but the good news is that all of Around the World in 80 Days is currently available. You don't have to wait for those last couple of episodes if that's a thing that you want to watch. All right. Anyway, back to the episode. Ooh, okay. And I'll the episodes get better, like it gets better with every episode. So Ooh. it's the top two episodes that are currently airing that are going to be airing tomorrow. <laughs> I love David Tennant. Can't go wrong with David Tennant. So, Agree. Um, I'll, I might have to watch it. Um, so I'm going to do the thing with you that I always do with everybody, where I ask you what your uh, like fandom journey is. What got you? So everybody has like a thing that got them into liking things, you know? Uh, what was yours? And like, how did you arrive here? And also, like, what are you doing now? I know you're a cosplayer. Uh, I know you're involved in at least reading fan fiction. I, I think you said that you write fan fiction as well. So what was your what was your path into that lifestyle? <laughs> okay, so when I was 13 years old, back in the pre-2000 times, I, uh, aka the 90s, oh my God, um, <laughs> I uh, found a magazine article that spoke disparagingly of this uh, pornographic uh, thing that people were doing uh, called manga. Um, and like they put in some illustrations and I was like, oh, that doesn't look pornographic. So I looked it up on the internet and uh, uh, at first I got into specifically dress up dolls. Uh, 
Oh, like the ball because, jointed dolls? Uh, no, actually. Okay, so <laughs> journey back in time to 1997, um, there are... Uh, and, um, a thing that is well known outside of, but like that, they don't have a fandom as much. They didn't have a fandom uh, back then as much as they as they did like later. Um, so it's actually uh, online. Uh, so it's uh, it's called Kisekai, and it's like a computer program that you download, and then uh, it allows you to like play with uh, like there's a doll there are outfits uh and everybody can like make their own doll and outfits uh and uh you download them from the internet and uh uh, a lot of dolls uh had the same weird hairstyle uh so i figured out oh that's probably the same character so i looked it up and it was sailor moon and that's how i got into sailor moon the next two years of my life were exclusively sailor moon then i uh uh, th- then I found out that manga had like gender bending characters, and holy shit, did uh, my <laughs> life improve significantly? <laughs> so, were, was this in Russia that you saw this magazine article that was like, manga is bad, don't read manga? Ah, <laughs> oh, so god, I have to clarify. So, I'm Russian, but I uh, have never lived in Russia, I grew up in Estonia. Oh. Um, oh, which okay. has a 20% Russian population. So I saw that in, a, in an Estonian Russian language newspaper. Ah, okay, 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 I gotcha. God, I'm doxing um, myself, ain't I? <laughs> there are a lot of people who live in Estonia. You're going to be fine. Yeah. I worked with somebody who is from Estonia. So oh, really? Like, cool. Yeah, this was, right. like three, this was like three jobs ago. So there's, there's plenty mm-hmm. of people on the internet who are from Estonia. So... It was anime at first. Like, when did you discover fan fiction? Um, in those two Sailor Moon years, I scoured the um, 97 internet for anything uh, having to do with Sailor Moon. So I found fan fiction. Uh, a lot of it was real bad. Um, <laughs> but, like, a lot of it was so good. And um, then I expanded into other fandoms. Um, mind you, this is all without having ever watched a minute of actual anime or read oh, a page really? of actual manga. Because how the hell are you going to get it in 97 Estonia? Uh, th- that's not a thing. Um, so I basically... Fandom was my fandom. Uh, I had no exposure to anything other than fan sites, fan fiction, fan art. Uh, I didn't... I never, I, I had no opportunity to get familiar with the canon itself, only with fandom interpretations of it. Um, That's and, really interesting. Yeah. And also, like, you're not the only one. I, um, I have spoken to several people who, even if the media was accessible to them, they just never got into it. They only got into the fandom aspect of the thing that they liked. So it's fascinating how that happens. It's very cool. Yeah. But like, I don't think anybody was ever as desperate for like fandom as me. Like I actually read the transcripts of people's role playing sessions, uh, which That's awesome. I haven't ever heard anybody do. <laughs> um, yeah, but like one of my best experiences with fan fiction, uh, my earliest and best experiences with fan fiction was um, Slayer's fan fiction by um, Two Flower. Um, which was written in the style of Terry Pratchett. 
and it was like really good uh, Terry Pratchett. Um, so basically, I was I was a fan of Terry Pratchett without having ever read Terry Pratchett either, just because the person like uh, did his style so well. Is there a reason that you never read Terry Pratchett? Like, it, was it like just not? something that you were interested in until you got into fandom and then you were like oh there's this whole author who does all of this stuff well i mean i didn't know he existed like how would i find out <laughs> okay that's um, fair i found him in uh our uh, library like what i found him when i moved to germany in the german library and i did not read him because the german terry precious covers are like super disgusting like mm. there's all those bulbous like limbs flailing about and <laughs> everything is awful so just going by the cover i was like Ugh, why would anybody and then yeah. i found them with the good covers and so i was like oh all right here we go let's take a look um have you ever heard of the legend of drist series of course uh, okay okay yeah i am a uh, role player also uh okay um yeah the the 1980s covers for those books were awful. Oh my, oh my god. Um, my friend, uh, who she's also into this series, and she told me that uh, she, when she was younger, just got them from the library, but she was actually embarrassed that the covers were so bad because she'd read them on the bus. So she would make covers for them, like out oh, of no. like, use, um, uh, like brown paper bags and like draw different covers on them. It was, oh. yeah. Uh, yeah, astounding wow. how a cover can be a, a deterrent for an entire series. Oh boy. Yeah, for um, sure. So you said that you wanted to talk about, you studied uh, literature, right? Yeah. And uh, you have some, some real interesting perspectives <laughs> on uh, like sort of how people have interacted with literature throughout history and in different cultures. And that like ties into fan fiction in kind of unexpected ways. So I'm really interested to hear you talk about that because uh, it sounded it sounded interesting and improbable from your description, but I'm willing to believe that it ties in. So give me the rundown. Okay, so it's not fan fiction specifically, but fandom in general. Um, so when studying Japanese literature, um, I uh, was mostly interested in the Heian period, uh, basically. Uh, 11th, 10th to 12th century um, Japan, where um, the court ladies, uh, mostly ladies, um, so um, the men wrote, uh, like, um, the texts that we have that were authored by men are like official documents, and the texts that we have that were authored by women are um, the words, the, are um, fictional texts. So, The Tale of Genji, the world's first novel, uh, for example, that was the biggest thing at the time, um, and kind of still is in Japanese literature. Um, there was, okay, there seems to have been a real fandom about it, uh, around it. Uh, because obviously, so first of all, um, if you want a copy of the text, you would have to write, you would have to copy the manuscript um so right. if you yes. want if you want a right. second book yeah. you have to like really want it <laughs> you have to be really dedicated <laughs> um so it it was a real labor of love just to make a second copy um and uh, it was copied um and uh, specifically one of the most 
interesting um, documents uh, from that age that currently exists is uh, the Sarashina Nikki, um, a diary um, written by um, a woman uh, who uh, basically documents, well, a diary or a memoir, um, who documents um, her life uh, from age um, about 10, I think, um, to uh, into middle age. And um, she starts out this um, diary saying, um, finally, uh, we are going to move from the boondocks to the capital. And I am so happy because I will have access to all this literature now. Like, I will finally be able to read all those fantastic novels that I've been hearing so much about. Um, and um, I have uh, made, presumably, I have ordered to be made a statue of Buddha um, to pray that I will be able to read all those fantastic novels in the capital. The original fangirl. Yes, I um, relate to her like a lot. <laughs> I mean, um, it's, uh, it's a super interesting um, text. And uh, yeah, if you're uh, interested in things like... Um, the sort of parallel, these sort of parallels, um, yeah. So um, basically, uh, novels and tales, uh, as they are usually translated, um, seem to have been, at least for some uh, women uh, of the upper classes, a huge, um, a huge focus of their life. Yeah, there are many other um, curious similarities between. Um, between Heian era court ladies and uh, modern internet fandom, such as, uh, for example, well, it it um, t the tales were distributed uh, mostly through a network of women. So um, the only way that um, the author of Sarashinaniki manages to get her hands on tales is um, through the good graces of her aunt, who is also apparently a fan um so she procures them for her and uh also um one thing that i find interesting is that um according to the so the, the tradition at that time was uh not to use a direct like not to call a person by their name but to um use a nickname for them that, um, for example, the author of um, The Tale of Genji is known as Murasaki Shikibu. Um, Shikibu is the um, title of her, oh God, was it husband or father? or some, Father, I think. And Murasaki is the name of one of, of the main female character from her novel. So self-insert much. This lady, this lady invented the self-insert and invented the screen name in one go. What a legend. <laughs> well, I mean, she didn't in invent the screen name. It was just uh, the way to refer to people at the time. Okay. So the author of Sarashina Niki, we don't know her name either. Like, basically, we don't know the names of anybody. They are all referred to by nicknames, uh, their um, positions that, that are derived from their positions or some, I don't know, significant event in their life or which uh, palace they reside in, this sort of thing. I have a question. Is the tale of Genji, yes. do we know for sure if it's the first novel or is it just the first surviving novel that we have records of? 
Um, it is, uh, it seems to have been the most famous in any case. Well, the distinction between what is a novel and what isn't is vague, right? So, um, yeah. for example, I, I was asking, mm-hmm. I was asking because like things like this tend not to just spring up out of nowhere, you know, surely people were like kind of writing stories and kind of thinking about how they wanted to present them and kind of experimenting with format before um, this, this particular large famous work came about. They, they must have. Sure. Been. So I'm, I'm just. There was a tradition there was a tradition of tales, um, something that we would uh, nowadays, like some, some most likely, com- most easily compared to fairy tales. So if you know of the legend of Princess Kaguya, um, the tale of the little girl found in a bamboo uh, stalk by a bamboo cutter, who then uh, is wooed by various suitors, um, and then uh, finds out, about her true heritage as a noble from the moon court and has to tragically leave uh, to go live on the moon. Um, oh, boo-hoo, so... you have to go live on the moon. <laughs> no, but, like, uh, she has to not marry the emperor oh. because, uh, like, she has to leave the emperor behind and uh, such. Um, anyway, so that sounds more like a fairy tale, but um, the, there are certainly some... Um, personalities being described and such and it's it is rather long so it i think it's a ninth century tale or so um but yeah it's definitely a precursor and there are other precursors um it is definite uh, the tale of genji is definitely um just the most uh no, the the longest um the most robust and the most famous i don't think there are many reference like it is definitely the one most referenced. Okay, I, I think it's the one most referenced uh, it, by the surviving documents of that time. So it was presumably the most famous. Um, is there a specific reason that men were not as into novel culture, like fictional story culture? Was it considered inappropriate for men? To, I, I ask because like throughout history in a lot of cultures, uh, like... For, like women's interests have been considered frivolous and not important and whatever men are interested in is the real thing that's important and women are just uh, like have their heads off in the class. So I, I was just uh, wondering if this is uh, a case of patriarchy thinking women's interests are silly or if it was just like kind of different spheres that they existed in or if uh, like maybe men were reading this too and they just weren't talking about it as much. Uh, men were reading it. Uh, we know that uh, there um, there are men who comment on uh, various um, tales um, depicted, for example, in various uh, in various diaries. Um, the copy that all modern ta- tale uh, texts of the tale of Genji are based on is either transcribed uh, is transcribed by a powerful male courtier either transcribed by himself or transcribed by his order um so uh men were definitely enjoying it also um but they were not writing it or at least not writing it as men i have no clue whether it would be possible to write something under a pseudonym in the kind of claustrophobic and gossipy um, atmosphere mm-hmm. of the Heian court. Um, yeah, but uh, it was um, 
it was definitely a patriarchal society. Um, even if the patriarchy looked somewhat different than it does now, and it is considered a more um, feminine age compared to, you know, the masculine and the warrior-like uh, aesthetics and ideals of later ages. When you say a feminine age, do you just mean like more of a like an aesthetic focused age or like an intellectual period as opposed to like... Uh, basically, uh, everything that we mostly associate with femininity nowadays. So I guess uh, back then, obviously, it would not have been considered feminine. Yeah. So that was maybe not the most accurate description. But um, yeah, uh, there was a strong, an incredibly strong focus on aesthetics. Um, there was, uh, there were, um, there was no war. Um, the So everybody's everybody's focus was freed up to to do some art and stuff instead of killing each other basically (laughs) exactly yes right like your worth in society depended on how well you performed in the poetry competition Mm, if only um (laughs) or at least that is the um that is the way that it is perceived um do you, I have no idea if there's any evidence of this. Do you think people were uh, like making changes to this as they were transcribing it? <sighs> yeah, that's a good question. I mean, surely, certainly, um, definitely. I feel yeah. like the temptation, the temptation must have been unbearable because if there's like, if the only way you have to copy something is to manually write it down and you just think like, hmm. I don't know. I'm really into Genji and I don't think this word describes him very well. Let me just uh, fix that for you and then pass it on to the next person and they have to transcribe it for their friend. And then they're like, oh, you know, I really don't like this description of mm. this sunset here or whatever. Let me just uh, fix that for you. Yeah, there are definitely differences between the various surviving um, copies. And uh, the question of um, chapter order is uh, one that is still unsolved. Like uh, there are various, uh, yeah, that, that is, for example, one of the most open questions in which uh, order the chapters are were originally written or actually supposed to be read. Have you heard of this? This is fairly modern. This is a real tangent. But um, the Icelandic translation of uh, Dracula is just an entirely new no. novel. Did you, did you hear this? So uh, I, I don't know who did the Icelandic translation. Uh, and this wasn't recent this was like at least several decades ago but whoever it was who translated dracula into icelandic just wrote like i think the last third of the book is just completely different it's like not even remotely the same story but because icelandic is not a a widely spoken language just like nobody ever bothered to check really i guess the icelandic publishing house that published this was just like we're sure you did it right it's fine and even the the guy who translated it had like a translator's note at the beginning where it said that he like made corrections to the text so the dude just wrote his own version of the story and icelandic people were reading this version of dracula for like decades thinking that surely this is the same as the dracula written in english why would we check so yeah this was this came to light fairly recently and now the icelandic uh, translation that was changed has been translated into English, and you can read 
the Icelandic version of Dracula that this guy wrote. Fantastic. So I just, I just thought it was awesome. I, I was like, that's some real king shit that this guy did. He was like, yeah, I don't like the way this ends. So I'm just going to change it. And nobody's going to notice. Yeah. Uh, very cool. Yeah. Extremely cool. That is definitely going on my to read list. Um, so this is a very good um, segue to another thing that we were thinking about talking about. Uh, the Russian translations of various classical works so um two of the most uh famous and beloved children's stories in uh russia are uh the wizard of emerald city which is uh an extremely loose translation of the first well not a, basically okay it's a it's an original novel uh closely based on the first book of uh uh baum's uh the Wizard of Oz, right? Yes, it's yeah. Okay. <laughs> I actually and it's, yeah, it's a series of books, but I think yes, I think the first no, one yeah. Is the Wizard I mean, of Oz, I, yeah. I I've read them all. I've read them all. Like, <laughs> I haven't I haven't read any of them. So uh, pardon um, me, I wasn't trying to correct you. I just didn't, couldn't remember. Yeah. No, uh, I'm just saying, Tin Man and Scarecrow, very shippable. <laughs> um, yeah, in both versions, both the Russian and the um, original uh, American. So um, the first book is based on The Wizard of Oz, and then the other five are entirely original uh, creations. Um, and uh, another very um, famous uh, children's book is Buratina, which is uh, a, a novel, a novella uh, closely based on Pinocchio. So I have a question about the Wizard of Oz. In Russia, we like that. Yes. Was was that a like officially licensed uh, no. version? Come oh, on. okay. I was gonna say. I was like, uh, it seems like that wouldn't be allowed. So they just did it and hope nobody would notice. Is the thing? Uh, I don't know whether international copyright laws were even uh, like were even uh, that. If you if you can even. Um, oh my god, enforce them uh, between America and the Soviet Union in the 30s and 40s. Uh, okay. I feel like I don't know if you would. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm sure there was like I'm sure there was some kind of law addressing it, but that that's a good point. Who's going to bother to go over there and be like, hey, stop that? <laughs> it's an actual, actually that's a great question uh, whether it was um, w whether the author was aware <laughs> of it. <laughs> And whether any sort of royalties uh, were paid, presumably they must have been because it's quite clear that it's the same book. Mm. Um, I don't know. Uh, maybe they just f did it as a translation. Oh, yeah, maybe. Maybe wasn't actually a very close translation. Maybe, yeah, maybe they just did the same thing that the Icelandic guy did, and we're like, uh, yeah, we like exactly. this version better. So, um, yeah, we're just going to call this the Russian translation of the Wizard of Oz. This this is fine. Nobody check. <laughs> now this one th this one works better for the soviet reading public that makes sense and i i do think that uh of course whenever you're translating something you do have to take like cultural expectations and uh sort of the the references your audience would understand and things like that into account but it sounds like this was a little bit more of an extreme adaptation than was necessarily um appropriate <laughs> <laughs> yeah so um, you said that these were were really popular. Are they still really popular now? They're they're still like 
a big deal? Um, I mean, okay, so they're children's books, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I, I think children nowadays still grow up with them, though I can't be one hundred percent sure because uh, I have not been in contact with actual uh, Russian culture for a while. That's okay. I haven't been in contact with any human children in a while, so that's understandable. <laughs> but definitely, there is, there are there is an online fandom, uh, and it is going as strong as you would expect an online fandom for a children's book to be going, unless it's Harry Potter, Was, which is an outlier well, I, and should not be counted. <laughs> um, is Harry Potter as popular internet? I mean, I, I know that mm. I know that you don't know about all countries, but is it? A- my nephew, my nephew just watched all eight movies. No, actually nine movies. Uh, and like he's drawing Harry Potter's car on everything and calling everything Harry Potter or like Harry Potter. <laughs> Oh boy. Okay. So that's it's still it's still very popular internationally, I guess it must be. Yeah. Uh I'm uh, I have very mixed feelings about Harry Potter now because of course I sure. I loved it as a yeah. child. I it was the first Harry Potter book was the first book that I read by myself like without my mom. Mm. My mom would read me books when mm-hmm. I was a little kid and when I was I don't remember how old I was, but it, it was the first book that I finished reading all by myself. And then I like got very, very deeply into the rest of the book. So it meant a lot to me as a kid, but obviously now I'm like, as a trans man and as someone who, yeah. uh, you know, knows full well what JK Rowling is doing, um, I really struggle to, yeah. I, I've decided just not to talk or think about Harry Potter on the internet anymore. I'm like, I can't, I can't do this in good conscience. I'm worried that I'm like promoting her and her ideas and like, Ah, so it's 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 a struggle. This is a this is a big problem that we have now that um, creators are public figures. You know, it's it's much harder to separate their work from their opinions. Yeah. But anyway. Yeah. Well, thank God I never had. Uh, I I am extremely into the Harry Potter fandom, but I've only ever viewed the books as um, things I have to read in order to understand what the fan fiction is about. <laughs> I've always felt like uh, Rowling does not like or care about fantasy literature and thinks she can do fantasy literature uh, like better. And I was like, mm. no, I love fantasy literature. What are you doing? That's an interesting <laughs> take. Yeah, she does. Um... You know, I feel like uh, it always came across to me as um, I'm I'm going to do all this stuff in a better and more int- uh, like I'm going to poke fun at this nonsense. Yeah. Kind of. I, that, I mean, I hadn't perceived it that way, but that does make sense with the way she's uh, like taking other cultures, like concepts and just like using them in whatever way she sees fit. She's gotten a lot of criticism for like, uh, like using native American, like legendary creatures. Oh God. Yes. American wizarding school without understanding the culture that they came from at all. I think that's extremely valid criticism. So I, I do think sure. I do think you have a point that she like feels some sort of entitlement to the concepts that she's using and feels that she can kind of use them in whatever way she sees fit without consequences. Oh boy. Oh no, we're talking about JK Rowling again. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um so you should tell me what you're into now in the the up to date 
fandom spaces. Uh, tell me, tell me, like what what you're doing on the internet. Uh, and like I said, you don't have to you don't have to reveal too much about yourself. But I'm just interested in knowing like where where you've arrived in your well, fandom journey. Hey, free ads, yeah. like. Of course, <laughs> I'm not gonna say no. Um, so, uh, all right. Um, my cosplay is mostly based on uh, the Adventure Zone, Ooh. as you might have guessed by my username. Uh, so, okay, my um, so, okay, I'm hugely into fashion uh, in general and historical and uh, Lolita fashion in particular, and. Uh, as I was listening to the Adventure Zone, at one point I realized, um, holy shit, there are no actual um, descriptions of Taco. Uh, so I can just take an umbrella, put on a wizard hat and some elf ears and say, I'm Taco. Because my outfits are always flamboyant. And uh, uh, basically, I can uh, dress up as Taco every day. And <laughs> I can finally become the cosplayer that I've always wanted to be, but never could because I I don't because I'm afraid of sewing machines. Um, yeah, uh, <laughs> so, actually, making new clothes is not an option for me. Only um, thrifting and uh, doing small alterations. Uh, I know a lot of people who like this about Taco. I have seen many, many, many Taco cosplayers that have like nothing in common with one another except like the umbrella and the elf ears. So it, it's a lot of fun to watch Taco cosplayers interact with each other. Absolutely. Like it's it was such an amazing feeling um, when I was at my first con in my giant uh, handmade wizard hat. And like I am tiny. So basically the only thing that, you could you could see over the heads of other people was like the top of my wizard hat and like i can just look over the crowd and see where there were other wizard hats poking up and kind of make my way over there and then at some point i noticed the wizard hat moving my way also <laughs> so basically that <laughs> cosplay is recognizing each other in the crowd it uh was an incredible moment for me because i'd never uh actually um i i but because I've always wanted to cosplay, but I never had the energy to do it. So thank God for podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> um, what's the what's the cosplay scene like in Germany? I know that there there's uh, like I know of some German cosplayers, so I know it must be uh, pretty popping over there. It is. Uh, OK, I. I've never been to the US, uh, so I, d I don't have a real basis for comparison. I only know what I see on Instagram. Um, and it seems to me to be pretty similar, but uh, there are, well, we have uh, cosplay contests, we have cons. Um, there are a couple ways in which I, which I think might be unique to Germany or Europe in general. So firstly... Um, I feel like cosplay is more accepted uh, as part of culture in general. So, for example, our two biggest cons, okay, well, two of the biggest places where cosplayers meet up are uh, book conventions, uh, mm -hmm. where um, people from the book industry come to sign deals and uh do you know official business and then also there are, uh, there's a lot of people and cat ears in the crowd uh, <laughs> just hanging out 
um, or at least that's how it used to be. And then a couple of years ago, they there were actually so many cosplayers that the organizers of these um, official professional book fairs uh, set up specific areas for cosplayers with like um, events for cosplayers, a stage and, uh, you know, a place to fix up your costume, this sort of thing. Do they have fan community conventions specifically over there? Sure, of course. Have you guys just co-opted the... (laughs) No, I mean, it's just two. It's just two cons. (laughs) One in South Germany and one in North Germany. Um, But, uh, of course, there are um, conventions that are entirely organized by fans. um, And also um, conventions organized by um, fandom-oriented publications, I think. Mm magazines and such um which have a bit of a different feel to them um than the fan run organizations and then also um we are slowly being taken over by comic cons um us we have that problem in the u.s too where everything's becoming sort of more corporate and more like sponsorship oriented and um like yeah all, all of all of the comic cons uh comic con has absorbed many smaller mm-hmm. conventions and it's just sort yeah. of turning them into comic con where they have you know they sell a lot of pop figures and everything's officially licensed mm-hmm. yeah but uh there is still a lot of conventions that aren't comic cons and then there also are the really small fan meetups um such as for example uh the one uh, run by a technology museum close by where i live um who just uh on on one weekend in september they um they uh organize an official cosplay meetup where uh mostly star wars cosplayers but also all sorts of other cosplayers just uh go to the museum and uh, hang out and then there's a parade um or i was at this tiny steampunk meetup at uh oh my god dirigible zeppelin uh airship museum um, I there's a difference between dirigible and zeppelin, but I don't know what it is. We Same. can use those interchangeably. I'm a bad <laughs> um, steampunk. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that, that's very cool. There's not a lot of uh, like sort of mainstream organizations in the U.S. that are into cosplay. Um, there's like uh, like comic book shops or whatever will sometimes have like events where they encourage yeah? people to come in costume oh that's but, cute um yeah but maybe i should suggest it to our local comic book shops um yeah i can't think of like a museum or anything that has like cosplay events that would be that would be cool yeah i mean you know they have all these um ships really really cool cars um and a u-boat and uh helicopters and all sorts of technology so it really um is kind of a great place if you want to take a science fiction-y looking photo like you can go inside a u-boat i am i really want to go there in like um a stolen century era um cosplay and pretend like it's the star blaster yeah do it i follow you on instagram now so i will be watching in case you do that no i know i felt good can i 
can I just talk about your amazing cosplay? Because holy shit, everybody who cosplays Molly is like gods here in my book. Oh. Like, how did you do that outfit? It's incredible. I can, I, I like die when I think of it. Oh, thank you. And also face paint. <laughs> yeah, I. God. So I've I've been sewing since I was like probably about thirteen. Like the first so. Um, when I went to high school, uh, I met my friend, Christine, shout out, Christine, we're still BFFs. And she had been to a convention before. And she told me that, like, she told me that anime conventions exist, basically. I'd never heard of this thing Mm -hmm. before I went to high school and met her. So, um, she told me that a lot of people dress up and I was like, oh no, I have to come up with a costume. I didn't like, I sort of knew that it wasn't mandatory, but I was like, oh no, if I don't make a costume, I'm going to be the only one there not in a costume, which turned out not to be true. But I got excited about the idea of like going in costume. So when I was 13, maybe 14, I think I was 13, but um, I started like hand sewing. Uh, it, it was from Naruto. I was a character from Naruto. We shall not speak anymore. Which one? <laughs> Um, I was, Come on, which one? Uh, I had very long blonde hair at the time, so I was Eno from Naruto. Ah, uh, uh, nice. Yeah, and it was also a pretty easy costume. It was just like a black and white kind of uh, like mm-hmm. crop top thing. So uh, I I hand sewed the whole costume like with an I, oh my I got gosh okay. fabric from Walmart, which is like a crappy store, uh-huh. and like I no, I know we had a Walmart uh, close by to where oh, I lived also. Okay. So oh, no. yeah, they expanded to Germany and then uh, failed because uh, our labor laws are too good to allow yeah, them. Yeah, well, good. To I expand. wish they would not be here, but anyway. Um, yeah. yeah, I, they had, they sold fabric at Walmart at the time. I, I don't think they do anymore, but anyway, yeah, I bought like $1.99 fabric from Walmart and hand sewed the whole thing. And my mom was like, you're crazy. Why are you spending so long doing that? <laughs> and so she bought me like a little, like $50, like sewing machine. And mm-hmm. that was my first sewing machine. Uh-huh. And like, after that, I, after nice. that I was hooked. I, I've never taken a sewing class or anything. I just like mm-hmm. did everything through trial and error, which took way longer than it would have if I had just, you know, taken a class or something. But um, you didn't have handicrafts instruction in school. No. Okay. Uh, no, uh, uh, the American school system doesn't believe in art or practical skills or anything like that. But, I, but like practical skills help you the workplace? I know. Sure. I know. Uh, like I, I wish that there had been, we didn't have, um, so we call it, we call it home ec. Uh, home economics yeah. here right and i think some schools do still have it ah. but it's not common it's not uh-huh. common anymore it, it was like uh-huh. in like the 50s the girls would take sewing and cooking and the boys would take wood shop you know yeah but, no i know i mean that's how i grew up that's how they did it in my school yeah but they don't that started to get phased out and i think it was mostly for like budget reasons. I think they were like, we don't want to mm-hmm. pay for this anymore. But they sort of pretended that it was for like gender equality reasons. They were like, <laughs> they were like, okay. well, this, uh, you know, reinforces uh, norms that uh, you guys don't like anymore. You guys keep telling us how you don't want gender norms anymore. So we're going to get rid of all of the useful classes. Great. And it's going to save us a lot of money. And we're just going to pretend like we're, uh, you know, Uh, being progressive here by not having uh, like home Uh classes anymore so yeah I think there are some public schools that still have them but my my school did not have that so 
Yeah, it was, this is why nobody can cook in America also, because like nobody learns how to cook in school, which is tragic. Nobody knows how to do personal finances. Nobody knows how to make okay. anything. No, like admittedly, that. what we did in school was they taught us how to make a sandwich, which, <laughs> okay, <laughs> I can make a sandwich without school education. Yeah, really. But um, I, I don't know. There's probably people who don't like you would be you would be amazed a lot of people can't make it a lot of people can't make an egg you know so all right but yeah i i was self-taught from the time that i was very very young and it took mm -hmm. I, I did a lot of bad costumes before i started getting better at costumes but like now as an adult i kind of know what i'm doing so yeah it's it's uh one of my primary hobbies i also larp uh mm -hmm. and you have to make costumes for that so i make sure i do my original interesting costumes for larp and then i i i have a lot of fun like trying to take something that's two-dimensional and make it three-dimensional you know that's why i like cosplay i see like the mm -hmm. template and i have to like mm -hmm. do a brain puzzle to figure out like mm -hmm. how that's actually built you know yeah so yeah that's this is this is how i arrived where i am today that and the the Face paint. I don't know why, but lately I'm just into characters who don't have like human colored mm -hmm. skin. So I did Molly, and for Katsukan, I'm doing uh, Nightcrawler uh, from the X Men. Nice. Uh, so I'm gonna be blue for that, and I'm also mm -hmm. uh, I got really into Gideon the Ninth. So mm -hmm. like in, right. in the book, it is face paint, but she's wearing face paint. So I got to do face paint for that, uh, and then I I really want to do. Uh, like Lotor from Voltron mm -hmm. and I just realized that like well everything I'm doing is non-human colored now so I should uh -huh. probably get uh like one of those airbrushes so I've got like an airbrush now that yeah I use for costume makeup god I tried doing face paint once and like I never realized how many unpaintable reddish bits I have in my face <laughs> like the eyes and the mouth and the nostrils and they just look red sticking out of the blue it looks so awful it's how do you do it i have to stick a paintbrush up my nose no really <laughs> holy shit yeah i mean okay. um like for the for the lips i just get a lipstick you know in case mm -hmm. i like get no, it in my mouth sure i just get like the, the same color lipstick and like inevitably you end up with a little bit of pink still, yeah but like you just pose your mouth the right way in photos and you don't notice um, but yeah, for the, for around the eyes, I just usually do like a heavy eyeliner and then like get it as close as I can. And for, uh -huh. you, just, you just gotta stick the paintbrush up your nose. That's the only Damn. way. Okay. <laughs> okay. It's the only way well, I know of at least. That's, um, that's very inspirational. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, boy, is there anything we didn't hit on? Is there, so, uh, I was, I, I did want to ask you, you had mentioned in your email that there uh, you know, there's there's a different experience reading yeah. fan fiction that's not in your native language and like sort of <laughs> reading about characters that don't have names that are familiar to you. So I've never, never spoken a language besides English. So yeah. So okay, when I started reading fan fiction, I started reading it in English, and like um, I also had the giant dictionary, so I kind of uh spent a lot of time like sitting at the computer with the dictionary on my knees um but uh that gave me the freedom of uh reading like uh reading erotic 
uh, stuff without um, cringing. <laughs> because uh, I, f- okay, so um, I feel like it's hard to read things in your native language because they hit closer to home. Mm. Um, and so if the author is not like su- super extremely good, and even if they are, you know, words are like hard. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, I, I'm I so eloquent. I, I think I understand what you mean because um, if there's like a degree of separation between you and what you're reading. Yes, exactly. You can sort of, you can externalize it more, I guess. Yeah. Which is, is not an experience I had with language specifically, but mm-hmm. I, I understand what you mean because if, if they're fictional characters and they, you know, there's no chance you'll ever interact with them in real life, then you don't feel like voyeuristic about it. So yeah, that's also part of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but the, the language thing, I feel like, well, I, I definitely do have the voyeurism problem, and I've never ever heard anybody talk about it. Actually. Oh yeah. Yeah, like if I um. If I read about characters who um, I feel specific, okay, definitely with like erotic fan art. If it's characters who I feel are private and (laughs) don't have like an exhibitionist streak, then I feel like wrong looking at erotic fan art because like they wouldn't want me to see them like this (laughs) sort of thing. I, I understand what you're like. I I don't feel that about all characters, but I know what mm-hmm. you mean because I'm about to I'm about to show my whole ass on the internet here. But um, I uh once sort of stumbled upon like a 3D. It it was like it was porn. It was like a 3D uh-huh. animated pornographic uh-huh. video of Dorian and the Iron Bull having sex. And that, uh-huh. I couldn't watch it. It made me uncomfortable. I love, yeah. I love those characters. Yeah. I love reading fan fiction about them. Um, uh-huh. I fully believe that like their, their characters uh, are both like both lend themselves to uh, like filthy, sexy stuff. Cause they're both, uh-huh. you know, they both like sex. They both talk about sex in the uh-huh. video game. But uh-huh. um, I don't know, for some reason, once it was like, animated and like fully like fully rendered yeah it felt like too real and i felt mm-hmm. uncomfortable mm-hmm. watching it mm-hmm. so i was just like okay this is too close to like me actually watching real people having sex without yeah. their consent so i didn't yeah i didn't watch it which is weird yes. because like I, I have watched like live action pornography before and most of the time it's fine but for some reason i felt like i knew it it was like if you found a video of your friend yes. having sex and that's so uh-huh. you can't, it uh-huh. doesn't matter. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Like it's difficult to explain exactly where the line is, but I, I know what mm-hmm. you're talking about because, Oh boy, there's a mm-hmm. line and it's clear when yeah. you find it, you know, but I guess it's different for different people. Yeah. It, it, it must be because it's also been different for me throughout my life, right? When I mm, first, sure. when I first yeah. uh, encountered like erotic writing <laughs> and the first, 
truly the first time I encountered any kind of like erotic writing was in just regular mainstream novels. You know, they would be Mm -hmm. a very tame sex scene in a regular Mm -hmm. novel and I would have to like stop reading or like skip over it or something because I was like, oh, uh, this is uncomfortable. But like I sort of got desensitized to it as time Mm -hmm. went on and as, you know, I became more mature and stuff. But like there's Mm -hmm. definitely still a line and you definitely know when you find it. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Is internet, again, I know that you don't know about like all of the international community, but in your experience in reading uh, like Russian and German fan fiction, is it as horny as English language fan fiction? Because I feel like there's a lot of very (laughs) horny English language fan fiction. Humans are human everywhere. Okay. I expected so. I was just like, I can't read it. So I don't know. Maybe maybe people are like more... um, I don't know. Maybe the people aren't interested in putting that sort of thing on the internet in other places. Maybe it's just Americans who are terrible and no. shameless. <laughs> no, they they do. Like, oh God, do they? <laughs> well, that's good to know. That's encouraging. Though, you actually, have- I cannot say anything about German fan fiction because my experience with it was very limited because, you know, there's less of it and also it's m- my third language, so... English just is better to read in. I haven't ever gotten into it. Oh, that's interesting. I'm very curious what the the German fanfiction O-sphere is like now. Well, we can look it up live on air because <laughs> like a lot of it takes place on a central platform. Oh, what is what's the German uh, fanfiction? What's the German version okay. of AO3? <laughs> well, um, oh God. Okay, so no. I can tell you, there's a German version of fanfiction.net, <laughs> oh. but there isn't a German version of AO3. Uh, there is a central um, a, a central uh, website for um, manga. Okay, for, there's a central website for fandom called animex.de, um, where um, which started as an as an anime uh, fan community and uh, expanded like into everything you know there's like uh categories for traditional uh for for uh, for role-playing games and uh for basically anything it was uh it's kind of dying off now slowly but i feel like uh it was bigger um like 10 years ago but still this is where a lot of the history of german fandom can be found do you know why that is? Is that is everybody moving to like a decentralized, like different sites for different fandoms, or is there just less mm. interest in it? I think it's the same as uh, English language fandom and live journal. Like you know, it, there used to be a time when everything, uh, uh, basically all fanish activity. Okay, I don't know, seventy percent at least of all fanish activity was taking place in live journal, and uh, then with stuff happening in live journal and uh other platforms emerging people moved on to different platforms i do not know whether anything happened with the the german side um but i feel like probably a lot of it uh is people um connecting with their with you know the international community on instagram and such um, do you know if the uh, the old site is being archived any kind of a way? Is there any kind of initiative to take all of what's on there and move it to a more well, up-to-date platform? 
uh, I mean, the platform itself is still pretty good. It's very usable. Uh, it's it doesn't look super modern, but like it's uh, very functional and uh, doesn't seem like uh, it's going to go down anytime soon. Uh, there is um, it's like a, a registered. Um, oh my gosh, there's a registered uh, society. It, it's uh, it's an officially recognized organization that uh, organizes uh, conventions and stuff. Oh, okay. So they're so, so they're maintaining it for yeah for, for posterity for fan posterity. Well, I mean, there's still uh, probably uh, like a lot of uh, stuff going on there, just not as much as there used to be. Are you familiar with the Organization for Transformative Works? Of course. Okay. Yeah, I was just yeah. Uh, yeah like, I donate. <laughs> yeah, I, I suspected that you were, but um, the. I, I really want to talk to somebody from there. I'm thinking about sending. Mm. Oh my god! Yes, and asking them if they would like have somebody mm-hmm. talk to me on the podcast because I've gotten really interested in like the organization and preservation of like fan works and communities on the internet. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not like very knowledgeable about it because, of course, mm-hmm. just as a fan, I've just been interacting with these like from a fan's perspective. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's. Uh, I've, I've come to realize as an adult, like in the last, you know, 10 years that there is so much, there is so much fan content on the internet, like yeah. in so many languages and from so many perspectives and from so many people. And uh, like, certainly you can argue that like some of it doesn't have value, but I, I, I don't know. I think to a certain extent, all of it is worth keeping like it's not absolutely it's not that expensive to you know now that our data storage capacity is so high now that we can Mm -hmm. store the entire internet somewhere um i don't know i think it's a worthwhile pursuit to be like cataloging and keeping these somewhere so i i I was just curious if there was any risk of this website sort of like going extinct so to speak but uh i'm glad to hear that somebody is maintaining it Sure. Yeah. Um, uh, wow. Many thoughts. One uh, thing that I find unfortunate about Archive of Our Own is that um, it's not very well optimized for fan art. Hmm. So basically, it's super good for the written word, but I mean, I don't even post any of my visual art on there because. I feel like I'm not sure how to. Yeah. We we used to have DeviantArt and I yeah. I don't know what's going on over at DeviantArt now. I like I haven't it still been exists. It, I know it does. <laughs> I know it does, but I haven't been on there in a long time. I feel like I um, have. Oh. Because new fandom, I had to see whether there was anything going on and like wow, the search function has gotten even worse. Oh no. <laughs> um also, like I, I've heard that uh, people have been just stealing art off DeviantArt to make into NFTs. That and people oh my are God. really okay. like upset about, like rightfully very upset about it, and have been taking their work off DeviantArt because they're afraid that it's not secure. Like, there, DeviantArt has some kind of feature where you can report that art has been uh-huh. stolen from you. But and then they, but exactly, like they don't have, uh, they don't, they don't have enough people to like enforce anything as i understand like a lot of people are submitting complaints like 
hey, somebody stole all of my like pixel art and turned it into NFTs. There's like 700 of them and they're all NFTs now. Please help. And but if, they are, if the NFTs are not being posted on DeviantArt, what can the DeviantArt people do about it? I don't, Hire a lawyer on your behalf? Yeah, I don't know what the process is. I know that uh -huh. DeviantArt is like officially opposed to this. Like their official uh -huh. position is that's bad and nobody should be doing it. <laughs> But okay. I don't. I don't think. I don't think that they can do much. Yeah, is the thing. So um, it's not like DeviantArt's fault particularly. Yeah. But um, the reality of the situation is that people are like taking their work down from DeviantArt because it's not safe anymore. Unfortunately, so are they posting it anywhere else online? I don't know. This is all a fairly recent development because the uh -huh. the NFT bubble has only recently. Expanded, uh, yeah. you know, like there's NFTs are like in I the mean, cultural yeah. consciousness now. So unfortunately, think, yeah. I, so I think nobody has quite figured out how to cope with this and what can be done to combat it, and you know what what we should do about it. So I guess we'll see. This is a whole new, whole new um, arena. Dystopian nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> whole new chapter in the dystopian tale of the internet and everyone on it <laughs> yeah mm. oh god another thing i wanted to say about archive of our own is uh i've been interested in the topic of archiving fan work ever since i read the story of mina de malfoy uh which is a fictional if Hmm. A fictional retelling of uh, various goings on in the fandom, mm. uh, which is basically a story about a fan fiction author who slowly falls in love with an archivist, um, and it's uh, really good. Huh. <laughs> I don't think I've heard of this. Um, Wait, let me type it in the chat because I don't know how to pronounce French. Oh, I don't know how to pronounce French either. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> the languages are another thing that they don't teach in American schools, unfortunately. So I didn't mm -hmm. even have the option. But yeah, Mina D. I would think that's Malf Malfoy. But or Malfoy's. <laughs> I mean, it, the fanfic author's name is clearly taken from Draco Malfoy's family. So, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, so... Is this is this a, a a published work or is this a? Uh, it's published on. It used to be. Uh, it's published in Live Journal, I think. Oh. So it's kind of old. Um, yeah, but yeah, because one of the protagonists was uh, an uh, was running a fandom archive. That's uh, how I first became interested in the topic of archives. Huh. I'm gonna have to read this now because I have I have not heard of it, but it's it's extremely meta. Like this is this is like three layers yes. deep into like what fan fiction is and what yeah. original work is and yeah. like the existential question of like what is derivative works. If you're interested in the history of fandom, this is basically a, a, fictionali a fictionalized history of fandom. For example, it chronicles the rise of the Twilight fandom mm. and how fans of uh, Twilight vampires intersected with the Snape fandom. <laughs> oh boy. Uh, have you, are you familiar with the YouTuber Sarah Zed? Oh my god. So I am a Homestuck fan, so yes. Mm. <laughs> but I have not ever watched any of her videos, though. 
Oh, I think she's very good. She's uh, got a very, like, kind um, and very, like, personal approach because she was in all these fandoms. Like, she was, mm -hmm. she was, she's not critical. Uh, well, she's critical of the things that, like, deserve being, like, deserve criticism, but she's not critical of fans. You know, she's not approaching the subject matter, like, uh, thinking it's silly or whatever so uh like yeah all of her all of her videos are very long but um her breakdowns of like fan works and fan communities i think are are very interesting i just recorded an episode uh of this podcast a couple of days ago uh with someone who uh was in the more more moriarty and moran sherlock uh, uh -huh. community and uh, -huh. uh sarah zed did a video about this like role-playing fan community and uh this person was like evan i gotta talk to you about this because it was buck wild so um yeah it's it's a very good it's a very good channel she takes a very good uh, approach so if you've got you know many hours to kill i'd recommend it because uh she's got some interesting takes and she goes pretty deep into like fandom history and stuff I don't actually know how people listen to YouTube videos. Like, it's basically like a podcast, but you have to have your phone turned on the whole time because otherwise YouTube will not be playing. Oh. So that's why I, YouTube videos are a big no for me. <laughs> I can only do podcasts. Understandable, understandable. Yeah, I have, I usually, um, like, while I'm working on cosplay or whatever, will have my mm. computer just, like, I have mm -hmm. a laptop, so I have it sitting in the background mm -hmm. and it'll be playing, you know, connected to my mm -hmm. house Wi-Fi, so I'm not using data and I'll just God, like, yes. <laughs> I'll, I'll work, I'll work while it's, while YouTube is running in the background, but. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, I've gotten very into uh, historical costuming YouTube recently. <gasps> um, there's a, a Polish uh, uh, YouTuber, uh, I think Katarina. Katarina. Yeah, uh, I, I don't know how to pronounce her name correctly in Polish. Zebrowska? That no? sounds right. I think the Z is said a little bit differently in Polish. I don't know. Sure. She's, she doesn't need my promotion. She's got like a million followers. <laughs> but um, yeah, she's very entertaining. Um, and I was watching some Bernadette Banner videos. And mm -hmm. like it started suggesting mm -hmm. me some other like smaller youtubers but yeah it, it really gets me in the zone like watching those like historical costumers like hand sewing stuff and i'm like oh boy they're doing something way harder than I'm, what i'm doing so i i can i can do this no problem this is easy <laughs> have you seen morgan donner's amazing pants i don't think so she she <laughs> she made uh trip pants you know those red black with zippers yes, and yes, stuff I, I wore those in high school. No, but like as an Edwardian walking skirt. Oh, you have to see nice. it. It's amazing. Oh, nice. Thank you. I was here writing it on paper like a, like I'm living in the dark ages. Um. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I've been using a lot of paper recently because I've been back into fan arting. Oh, do you, do you share this anywhere on the internet? Would you be willing to? Uh, I have a fan art uh, Instagram. It's a stolen century, like without the V. Uh, okay. Um, you actually, we should we should probably wrap wrap up podcasting time, and you should probably yeah. plug all of the stuff that you do and where people can find you and follow um, you on the internet. Yeah. Um, 
there was one more thing I wanted to mention in oh. regards to fan fiction, uh, sure. which is um, so basically, my understanding of fan fiction is uh, that it exists on a continuum between um, uh, f- from origi- from complete originality to complete derivativeness. Mm-hmm. So, like in my understanding, there is no um, dividing line between fan fiction, original work, and such. Uh, because if you go all the way to the uh, derivative, to the end of the derivative scale, you end up with 100% plagiarism, which, um, yeah. And if you go to the other end, uh, there is no such thing as a completely original work uh, mm-hmm. because um, every, every, um, everything firstly builds up on other authors' works, um, but also even if you have like never read a book in your life, you are still using language, mm-hmm. which yeah. is and also... And yeah. you've still heard stories, like you've seen, yes. you've seen television yes, or you've heard someone tell you uh, a fairy tale as a child or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think that that's a very, like, saying it's like a continuum or like a spectrum is a very, like, insightful uh, perspective because there was there was a time when I was sort of, like, trying to categorize things mm-hmm. as fan fiction or not and, like, you mm-hmm. know, getting in debates with people about what was and wasn't <laughs> fan fiction. Um, but I feel like the older I get, the less I believe that categories exist at all for anything um Mm -hmm. like and this is this is true like literally across all of life like um you know there's no such thing as a species really yeah like there are there are animals that are sort of different from each other there are animals that are uh, like a transitionary stage between what we Mm -hmm. consider one species and another species so like this is i mean extremely different example but uh, humans really like to categorize things. And I think mm-hmm. we need to like get out of that <laughs> mindset a little bit. You know, I think we need to just be more chill about what deserves to be in one category and what deserves to be in another category and just accept that things are kind of fuzzy and weird, but we don't, we don't like uncertainty instinctively. Yeah. That sounds good. Yeah. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, so now to the. Hmm? I, I was just about to ask if you had heard of that uh, that Chinese uh, like quote unquote seventh Harry Potter book that was just the Hobbit with Harry Potter's <laughs> name put in. Oh, yeah, I think I've heard of it. <laughs> that's on the that's on the furthest part of the scale. Yeah, hundred percent derivative work. Yeah, uh, pretty much. Yeah, there's like a sentence that if, listeners, if you're not familiar with this, this happened quite a number of years ago, probably like 10 or 12 years ago now. But uh, like when there was a lot of hype about the last Harry Potter book coming out, uh, like some publisher in China published what they said was the seventh Harry Potter book, but it just had like a few sentences at the beginning that said like Harry Potter was a little boy who lived at blah, blah, blah address. uh, And he went to sleep. And one day he woke up as a hobbit in the Shire. And then they just reprinted the entirety of the Hobbit. Um, which is very funny. It's very funny. I, I can't, I assume that this publisher made a little bit of money off this and then just, uh, disappeared into uh, a cloud of smoke, never to be seen again. I don't know. (laughs) 
But um, yeah, that was that was the first thing I thought of when you said like, yeah, there's a hundred, there's some things that are hundred percent derivative mm -hmm. that are just plagiarism, mm -hmm. and I was like, yep, yep, there sure are. <laughs> Perfect. But also, since you mentioned getting the ninth, um, you know, the author Tamsin Moyer um, actually uh, wrote writes a lot of fan fiction, wrote a lot of fan fiction, right? I've heard somewhere that this was the case. Yeah. And if I hadn't heard, I would have suspected because there's yeah. a lot of like yeah. referential stuff in the books. There's yeah. a lot of like meme jokes. Yeah. And it's just clear from the books. And I mean this in a very positive way because I love mm -hmm. those books. They're really good. Same. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of like referential stuff in there that if you're paying attention, you you know that that this woman lives on the internet. <laughs> Mm -hmm. um, but on the topic of fan fiction is good actually uh even if you are not familiar with homestuck i definitely recommend uh looking up her stuff because uh, her her fanfic uh because it's really freaking good like so good <laughs> yeah i'm not familiar with homestuck but uh if do you is this known is it known on the internet which fan fiction she wrote is it public knowledge um sure her uh her ao3 um account is urban anchorite i wrote it in the chat please pronounce it in the correct american yep urban anchorite <laughs> yep right yep so yeah it's real freaking good i particularly recommend Lalonde's Inferno because you don't need to know a lot of about Homestuck and it's short. I'm and, gonna uh, do it. I'm gonna sexy. do it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. This is this has been a, a real pleasure. Uh, like this is really, really interesting and I'm really glad we got to talk about cosplay stuff and fandom stuff. So I'm I'm Thank you so much for reaching out to me. Likewise. And I'm so sorry that I missed your email for like seven months. No. Oh my God. No, thank you so much for making this podcast because I, ever since I stopped reading things with my eyes and switched exclusively to podcasts, I have been really missing like fandom meta posts. So this uh, podcast is filling a huge hole in my life. Oh, thank you. Um, you should, like I said, Plug yes. everything where people should find you. Uh, I'll ask you for links again, uh, like after we're offline to make sure I spell everything right. But just like go through your list of things where you want people to find you. So I'm mainly active on Instagram. You can find my cosplay, uh, mostly the Adventure Zone uh, under the underscore stolen underscore century. And I guess a bit of fan art under stolen underscore century without the uh, or if you're a Tumblr person, uh, uh, you can find me at uh, thinking minus with minus quadrants because I love Homestuck and I love Star Trek Deep Space Nine, both of which deal with quadrants. Awesome. Thank you so much. Fanfiction is Good Actually is part of Where They May Radio, a small family of podcasters just doing our best. You can keep up with Fanfiction is Good Actually on Twitter at fanficisgoodpod, and you can reach Evan via email at fanficisgood at gmail.com. For bonus content, including bonus episodes, visit patreon.com slash wtmradio.
where they may radio.